partially probably has to do because of the nice weather outside too. But my goodness, what a great day! First uh, John chapter three verses thirteen through seventeen. First John chapter three verses thirteen through seventeen. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Hopefully everybody is doing well. Summer is almost upon us. Uh, The Howards lost their baby at some point today. So if you see a little kid about yay wandering around outside, they need they need some help. Um, the passage this morning, John encourages these early church believers in the middle of some kind of persecution uh, that is going on, something that they're experiencing, and and he gives them a bit of a vision. And when I say vision, I mean an idea of the future. Not a, not a mental vision of a you know, ladder coming down and clean and unclean foods, but a vision for the future that, frankly, lands on, on us today. Um, he gives them a perspective on what's happening around them, and he wraps that up in the loving nature of who God is and, and in God's character. And this gives us a vision for the church today. John in doing so, demonstrates a necessary tension and opposition between good and evil and kind of draws those lines in really interesting and compelling ways of good and evil as aligned to God's character. So looking first at verse 13, and frankly, we'll spend, we could probably spend all of our time or a couple of, uh, a couple of Lord's days on the 13th verse. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And at first read through that, you could go very quickly beyond that. Okay, the world hates them. They shouldn't have been surprised by that. But moving past that verse too quickly without allowing its time for the Holy Spirit intended impact would miss out on a lot of encouragement for us today. So for context, we'll read verses 11 through 13 and and come back because those are helpful in understanding what we're talking about. Starting in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So he takes this concept of Cain and Abel and brings it into the 
the hatred that the world is, is giving now because he's writing to the church, the early church, the world around them are, are starting to really have a visceral reaction to them. And he brings that all the way back to Genesis 4, to the story of the first siblings. He demonstrates the tension and the opposition between good and evil. So rather than assume we know the story of Genesis 4, let's go there. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 13. It's always a good exercise to not speak from your memory on on the word, but to go there. In fact, I like to do this when I have conversations with people. Um, When they say, well, you know, the passage that says this or that. We talked this morning that the, the love of all the love of money is the root of all evil. Or is it money is the root of all evil? Which is it, right? And so sometimes we have things in our head in a certain way, and we don't even realize that it's actually not what the Bible says. So turning there can be helpful. That said, Genesis chapter 4, starting in in verse 1. I guess while I say that, I should turn there myself. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And this is the story that John is drawing on with the church and how the world around them are reacting to them. So the interesting thing about Scripture is, It isn't interesting stories that sound neat, protracted against a a backdrop or a set, like a a play. It's real things that actually occurred. And that's one of the things that's so encouraging about Scripture. There's a really interesting uh, YouTube uh, documentary. Maybe it was released otherwise other than on YouTube, but it's from a gentleman who was Mormon and grew up in Salt Lake City, was a was you know a, a believing Mormon person and started to ask questions of the Mormon apologists about some of the wars that took place. Um, you know the the books various books of Mormon talk about wars that never occurred, 
and records animals on continents that never existed on those continents. And he started to really pick at that and say, well, if there was battles where this many people died, surely the, the fossil record would show it. I think I shared with you all before, I used to live in, in Naples, Italy, and the joke was always that anytime they would scratch the surface of the ground to try to build a new building, it became an archaeological dig. And while we were there, um, in, in fact, it's, it's funny because there was a fireworks uh, uh, factory right around the corner from us, uh, which sounds cool, and it's actually not, because they test those fireworks at about 2 in the morning. And so uh, Brianna and I, and invariably the Thai, who was a baby at the time, would wake up, and we'd just give up and stand on the, on the porch. And our porch looked over an archaeological dig, because they tried to build another building next to us and scratched the surface, and lo and behold, it's an archaeological site. And the scriptures tell of times and places that actually existed. The scriptures tell about people that were real. Uh, the scriptures talk about places and wars that can be verified by the archaeological record. And so we don't have a, a text that's ethereal and otherworldly. We have a text that's absolutely accessible. We have a text that talks about real things and people. And so when it talks about the story of Cain and Abel, we can't lose sight of the fact that this was a brother that actually murdered his brother because of the offering that was given to God. It was jealousy that caused Cain to murder. Looking at his brother being accepted by God and realizing that his offering was not accepted by God. This is the tension and the opposition that exists between good and evil. And we can't forget that. Good and evil, these aren't just made-up constructs. These are real things that actually occur. You don't have to look very far in the world today before you see examples of evil. So we would do well to remember that the tension and the opposition exists until Jesus' return. And in case you have not noticed, Jesus has not returned. And so that tension is still very real and very present. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the tension. Loving the things of the world, meaning giving yourself, putting that before God, means that the love of the Father is not in him. John says in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. When he talks about the world, he talks in the, the idea of the, the world systems that are energized by this common hatred of God. This is the way that the world reacts to God. People that seek after their own desires without any kind of a selfless love. It's a, it's a self-exalting love that the world has. The world can love, and really they probably mean strongly like things. Um, there's love everywhere. We have a, a holiday around it in February, right? Because February is the worst month. And it's full of hatred and cold and bitter air. So we have Valentine's Day where you get to eat chocolate and tell people that you love them. But frankly, a worldly love is really just out for itself. A worldly love says, what do I get from this person? 
A worldly love can move on. A worldly love can change its mind. Just watch Lifetime television for women. It really describes the world very well, the world around us very well. And so starting from the story of Cain and Abel, John encourages the church that the hatred from the world around them, it shouldn't be startling, it shouldn't be an upending surprise. It's expected. It's the way that the world reacts to godliness. It's guttural. It's, it's instantaneous. John 3, 16 is actually followed by 17, 18, and 19. And verse 19 reveals that we love the darkness more than the light. In our natural state, we love the darkness more than the light. Maybe you remember when you were in school, you, you look at the way that plants grow and different kinds of cells grow in different directions so that the plant can move towards the light. Or have you ever seen like a plant that was set next to a window? It starts to lean in one direction and look kind of weird. Or I remember when I was a kid, they did those weird like stop motion videos. You know, and you'd watch this like jerky plant like grow in a weird direction. It follows after the light. The human heart does the complete opposite. It sprints towards darkness. It runs away from God. That's why the scriptures tell us that none seeks after God, no, not one. Which means if you were working on a math problem and you took the entire population of all people who ever lived, the answer of how many people were sprinting after God is zero. None seeks after God, no, not one. And so if someone is found genuinely seeking after God, that is a work of God on that person's heart. God interrupts and violates our free will to compel us towards him because none seeks after God. No, not one. The human heart is driven towards darkness. And so when John is talking of the world here, he's talking of this world system that's energized by a common hatred of God. And so John actually then gives an approach to the hatred of the world that's helpful to the believer and is still helpful towards us today. Because what can happen in the life of a believer if we get away from the scriptures, if we get away from the word and we just start reacting to the world around us is you can become frustrated towards tension and not realize that it's necessary and should be absolutely expected. If your gospel brings no tension, then it may be no gospel. If you share about God to a lost and dying world and your cross does not bring any foolishness, it might not be the gospel. The gospel brings with it division. Christ came as a sword. And so what John gives to the church is helpful to us even today. And so that's why we can't move too quickly beyond verse 13 because it frames up why the world reacts towards believers in this way. And it goes back to Genesis 4. And it goes back to the human natural reaction to God. In fact, verse 13 is written in a way in, in, in the, the language that the, the readers would have been reading in that it would have immediately stood out that he is basically not saying, um, he's, he's framing this up in a way such that the readers know that there are some who are surprised. It, it is assuming that there are some people who are surprised by the way that the world is reacting towards them 
in the church. And so he's saying, don't be surprised, brothers. You can, you can almost insert in there, you are surprised, but you shouldn't be surprised that the world hates you. This is very normal. Look back to Cain and Abel. When, when Abel brought an offering that was accepted, it wasn't that God said, hey, that's a wonderful offering. It was what God saw about his heart. It wasn't that God liked the things he put on the ground in front of him. It was that the things he put on the ground in front of him flowed from his, from his heart, from who he was, from where he was before God. And so he's encouraging them, don't be so surprised. The ESV, the NASB, and the NIV all say, do not be surprised. The NRSV says, do not be astonished. That's the weight. We should, you know, it's like, we're, it's like Christmas, right? In your budget. Maybe you're surprised every year at December 25th. Oh, I have to buy everybody Christmas presents. I don't have enough money. If only I could have seen this coming. This is the way that we as believers can sometimes go. As soon as any amount of tension comes to us, we're like, wait, what? I thought when I became a Christian, the whole world would love me. I, I thought that it would help my business. I thought that it would help me do more sales. I thought that I would make more friends. And I thought that it would be a great place for my kids to hang out and, and be comfortable. I thought that they would have this leader who would teach them games with marshmallows in their mouth and buy them pizza. Why would anybody hate me? I'm a Christian. And so the hatred, John explains, is precisely how a lost heart reacts towards God. Because the church is a tangible, you can touch and feel and see elements of God's character in the church. And so as the church, the believers, the saints, you all, go out and into the world and you react and you interact with people, they should see little bits of Christ in you. That's so why I say over and over again, and I love the illustration because it's helpful to me, of magnification. We are to magnify God to a watching world around us. And maybe we feel like, well, why would I need to magnify God? And, and the best way that, that I know to explain that is there are two kinds of magnification. One is the magnifying glass. You can go outside and you can take something small and you can hold it up and then you can see it better because it takes something small and it makes it large enough to see inside of the lens. The other magnification is like a telescope. So I go outside at night, I orient it on the planet that I want to see, and it magnifies something that's so far away and so ethereal, but so huge, so vast, and it makes it so that I can see it. We, as believers, magnify God in a similar way. And so as we go about our day and our lives, magnifying God to a watching world, they react to God's character with hatred. They're bending towards the darkness and away from the light. Now, the, the trap that we can get caught in potentially as Christians is to revel in people's reaction towards the light. And that must be resisted completely. You hear it in people. Oh, I was, I was persecuted. No, dude, you were not persecuted, right? Like somebody just resisted to what you believe. This is not persecution. This is called conversation. <laughs> if, you, if you get killed and your Bible gets dipped in your own blood, I'll be in the persecution camp. Uh, but if, if somebody got frustrated with you in line at Starbucks because you hold to a young earth creation view, I'm going to hold off on the persecution label. And so John explains 
that the lost human heart reacts with hatred towards God. Earlier in 1 John 2, 29, and then spanning into chapter 3 and verse 1, here's how that couplet reads. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So the world here, as John uses it, the world are not children of God. Being not children of God, then they are children of the devil, and then their deeds function from that place. They are attached, they are found not in Christ, they are attached and found not in God, they are attached and found in resistance to Him. This is the state that we were left with in the garden. This is why we have an expiration date. Could you imagine creatures far from God living eternally? I mean, it's almost incredible what we can do in our 70 years of life, 80 years of life, 90 to 120 years of life, the amount of destruction and power one person can amass and loose. And so by His grace, God expires us so that we leave this place. And maybe sometimes you feel the weight of this place. I know I do. Um, everywhere you look, it seems, it seems increasingly, but it's probably been since the beginning, that the world just pushes and pushes and pushes harder and harder against truth. Almost to sometimes it's just, you feel like it's on the edge of being angering or comical. Like, really, you believe that? You think it's crazy that I believe that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh? Like, I'm looking at some of the stuff you believe in thinking, hmm, okay. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, um, so John is, is very kind of consistent in these views. In John 15, 18 through 21, we read, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We gloss over passages like that. We forget that sometimes in our day-to-day life. And, and, and we react from a place of pride. Like when you're driving and someone cuts you off and you become angry, right? Like, I know because we have wired your car with video and we can just show your reaction to people cutting you off. Some of you, your kids speak in special ways because they've been around when you've been cut off in the car. I mean, I'm not calling out anybody's name, Lisa. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
But that doesn't tend to describe the way that we receive this kind of pushback from the world. We become personally offended. How would you treat me that way? We become angry. And we become more about the argument than about God. Right? That's why apologetics, I think it's really important. If you, if you become interested in apologetics, that's fantastic. Right? Specific arguments for the faith, that's great. But you have to remember, an apologetic is only pre-evangelism. If you have debated with someone in apologetics, you have not participated in evangelism. You've participated in argumentation. You've given a reason for the hope and the faith that lies within you, and you now then have the opportunity, prayerfully, God willing, to share the gospel. But just because I can convince someone that something is true doesn't mean I've done anything important. Someone else can convince them something different. If they have eloquent words of speech, that's not what Scripture calls us to do. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. See, that's the, that's the desire. That's the heart of the Christian influence in the world. And I think sometimes we can go around being happy to argue, right? Maybe you can get kind of painted into a corner where you think your whole job is just to start an argument about a Christian position, which can become a political position if you allow it. And then you just have an argument and now you're done. You can write that person off. You can, you know, dust off your sandals because you've done your job. But the second half of 1 Peter 4.13 says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I think sometimes we rejoice and are glad when our glory is revealed, when we are smart enough to bat down an argument, when we can walk away feeling like we have crushed that other person. You hear it often when people talk about um, different groups that come to the front door, the pride of having been able to crush their argument. When in reality, our desire should be that they see the glory of God in the gospel, how great he is. All of our argumentation with someone should simply be so that we have the opportunity to share the gospel and salvation with them. I mean, this place is crushing. This place, this world desires nothing more than to leave you a smoldering pile of ashes in its wake. And so John, for the benefit of the church, helps them see a vision that, listen, the world hates you. And so don't be surprised. Don't be so taken back by that. This is normal. Peter's biblical Christian life picture that he gives in 1 Peter 4.13 has us rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ in a world that's opposed to him. When I feel hatred from the world, we should be encouraged that Christ was found in us. We should be encouraged that Christ lived this way. We should be encouraged that we get to bear the sufferings of Christ in our body. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Brothers here is of the same fold, similar to the way that Jesus uses it in Matthew 12.50, the way that we see it in John 20.17. John, as he says this, is adding himself into the brethren. We are all being hated by the world. We, the, 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 the people of the body, the body parts, many members coming together to form the body of Christ. We are all together hated by the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the power of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We, in verse 14, is, is we, the brethren, the members of the body, the family, who are marveling, who are surprised, who are astonished at being hated by the world. We have passed out of death and into life. He's, he's helping them understand, you're, you're, you're a victor. The, you, you, you wear the uniform of the winning team. You're in the body of Christ. You know the end of the story. You know what's going to happen. So why then will we feel so crushed when interim steps along the way feel like we're not marching towards victory? But you know you are. You have a vision of the future. You know that you're victorious in Christ. Jesus Himself secures the victory. God has told us that He will prevail. And so why then do we feel crushed by any seeming stumble along the way? And understanding the Old Testament Scriptures helps us survive as well. You look at Israel as in slavery for so long, taken out of slavery, led by God, pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, brought up to the edge of the water with an entire national army chasing, bearing down on them, threatening to kill them. Seems like it's an impossible end. And then God does the impossible, opens the water, dries the land, allows them to pass through. And some people would maybe say, oh, well, it was the Reed Sea, very shallow sea. Let's say we accepted that for a moment. Here's where the real miracle comes in. The shallow Reed Sea drowns the entire nation's army after God's people pass through. So it's, it's not true. It was a real sea. And God did something miraculous to bring his people through. And so that's the character and the nature of God. He's not like a man that he should lie. He has told us that his kingdom will prevail. Jesus told us that our victory is not secured by our own efforts and salvation. In fact, we brought nothing to the table to our salvation. If we had, we could boast, but we can't. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. This is who we are in Christ. And so, if that's who we are in Christ, if that's real, if we know that that's true, if we know it's secured by the very God who's not a man that cannot lie, if we know it's secured by the very God who brought Israel to the, the edge of the water, opened the ground so that they could cross through, and then drown the entire army after them, we should feel secure when we see that the world hates us. And we should feel secure that the idea of that reaction, that guttural reaction of the world, is an opportunity for us to share of the grace and mercy of God. Not an opportunity for us to revel in persecution. Not an opportunity for us to have, a, have, a, have the opportunity to fight with people. Not an opportunity to be a, a Facebook warrior and really grind it out and show people what's up. We have passed from death. So the hatred of the world is only somewhat relevant in so much as it offers an opportunity for us to share the grace and goodness of God. And we shouldn't be astonished 
at that hatred. Right? It's like being surprised at the same thing over and over again. Right? Like wrapping your own present, opening it, and being astonished. I got that for myself? That is great. The second half of John 3.14 says, Because we love the brothers. It's consistent with John 5.24, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the picture of the believer. This is the picture of the believing life. This is what it means to be found in Christ. We have passed from death to life. And the fruits of that become apparent in our having love for the brothers, for the brethren, for the family. So when I hear Christians say that they're not in a local fellowship and they don't need that, perhaps they have elevated beyond that. Maybe they know enough that they don't need to be in a church. I struggle because I think of so many passages that talk to that. John 13, 35. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, I tend to gather around with the people that I love, not hide away from the people that I love. Um, I spend time with them in person, not just Facebook. In fact, Facebook is like, it's almost as if the technology of Facebook has allowed every day to be Thanksgiving dinner with the entire extended crazy family and everyone's in your living room, right? I used to enjoy people more when I knew less about them. Facebook makes me know everything about everyone. And Facebook makes everyone stand on a soapbox. I don't know what it is about this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. How would I describe that I love the people I do not gather with? I don't know. Say, hey, all the people that you say you love, they're all in this one building every week. But I, I, I don't go there. I know more than they do. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his Friends, that's what Christ did for us. And so we gather around the truth of that message to celebrate together with the other people for whom that's beneficial. We become armed up as we go out into the world to remember that, okay, there are lots of other people who believe like I do. And that's encouraging. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. To isolate is to seek after your own desire, the things that you want to do to the to the exclusion of everyone else. And it breaks out against sound judgment. So it's not good judgment for you to isolate yourself. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if you read that backwards, you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if you're not exhorting one another every day. We need each other more than we think. Hebrews 10, 25 to 26, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you want to have Christ's fellowship and avoid the saints, then your issue is not with the church. Your issue is not with me. Your issue is with Scripture. 
1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The brotherly love that we describe in 14, that John describes in verse 14, it's not the cause of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. Think about it. If you were not a believer, would you want to gather with this ragtag group of hooligans every week? No, I would be completely disinterested in you guys. But I love you like family. I hug you and I'm not a hugger. I've seen John hug people and he pets with a broom. Karen was talking about a foot washing ministry just the other day because of her love for the brethren. I know things about you all and you know things about me that we would never know about one another if it wasn't for the love that we have together. This is, this is a gift of God. The family of God is a complete gift and we should revel in it. And when the world sees it, they'll react to that. There's some reaction to that. It's a, it's a measured reaction. If I step on a seesaw or like foghorn leghorn, if I step on a rake, what's it going to do? Smack me right in the face. It's a measured reaction. That's right. I invoke the name of Foghorn Leghorn. Some of you have no idea who Foghorn Leghorn is. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Think about the encouragement that John is giving to the church. Hey, the world is hating you. You shouldn't be so surprised by that. Don't be taken back by that. Don't, don't let your faith be crumbled by that. Don't be like Quasimodo, dragging one leg, seeking sanctuary. That's what the world does. And you should be encouraged by the love that you feel for the brethren. This is not from you. This is a gift of God. It's not the cause of our salvation. It's fruit of our salvation. It provides evidence of our salvation. Um, if you consider Luke 7, 47, it reads like this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now what happens if we kind of follow the trajectory of that logically? Her sins, which were many, were forgiven, and she loved much. He who's forgiven a little, loves a little. What if you're not forgiven? You don't have love. So looking back to 1 John, go to verses 15 and 16. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A condition in us of hatred demonstrates a distance from God. Because in the Christian life, there's this peace that surpasses all understanding. It's bought by Christ. We can walk away freed of so much. When people wrong us, 
We feel it because we're human and we're personally offended by that and we don't like to be uncomfortable. Like if you know me, I'm a comfort animal. I'm here for my comfort. But the Christian life is different. It can be uncomfortable. However, the peace that surpasses all understanding is that we know that this life is temporary. It's but a vapor. We're passing through. We're sojourners in a foreign... We're foreigners in a foreign land. And we know that the end of the story is that we're in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has elements, vestiges today and now. At this point in time... But its real implications are in the future. To be a member of the kingdom of God in the future is to be present with God for eternity. That creates a peace that surpasses all understanding. So if I'm in line at Starbucks and someone disagrees with me on young earth, young earth creationism, I, I'm going to survive that. I really am. Um, if, if someone disagrees with me that God created the world and everything in it, that's okay. And prayerfully, that's an opportunity for me to ask some questions of that person, right? Well, how do you finish the sentence of nothing comes something? So you think if enough time occurs, so if I, if I, take, if I hermetically seal a mayonnaise jar and place it under your porch, after billions and billions of years, there will be a series of planets inside there that are kind of stretched out across the, the, the inside of the jar, and there would be tons and tons of microorganisms, but not single-cell microorganisms, really complex microorganisms who at the cellular level kind of just constantly divide and recreate, who can recreate and procreate themselves, who have moral capacities. You would never accept that in a jar, but this is the argument from all of life, is that there was an eternal absolute nothingness, and with no prime mover whatsoever, life occurred. I mean, I think that is an argument from foolishness. So my argument then would say, the Scriptures presupposes a creator God. It begins in the book of Genesis, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't lay out four evidences for God. It doesn't say, oh, there's a God, and let me tell you why. You look at the cosmos. Certainly someone had to create the cosmos. And that's all really interesting, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that when I read these scriptures that talk to me about this presupposed God, they explain to me my moral fiber and fabric. They explain to me why I lean towards the darkness rather than light. They explain to me why when I hit my thumb with a hammer, I don't say Mahatma Gandhi. My heart's energy desires to be mad towards Jesus and use his name as a curse word. There is an innate hatred in me before I'm found in Christ towards God. When I visit a church and I'm a non-believer, I see the words and in myself, I hate them. Why is everyone rotely repeating these idiotic words of worship of some sky monster who cannot exist? And the answer is that we are born in our first father, Adam, who was separated from God but we can be reborn into Christ, who's the head of the church, who exhibits all of the love and character of the Godhead, and we can be found in Him. And then we can understand the Scriptures and see the great character and nature of God, the living Word that divides between soul and marrow, bone and spirit. 
You can fix that in your head. What a great news. What a great gospel. And it's a, a scripture that tells stories of people really accurately. Because if I was going to write a text to convince people to be a part of a, of a religious system so that I could control them better, let me tell you what it wouldn't look like. It would not look like this. It would put people in the center as heroes. It would put the ruling class in the center of heroes. And if you read this, this reads more like a Jerry Springer script than it does hero worship. This tells us who we really are and explains who we are, and it gives us the remedy. Right? That's the great news, is that we can see the problem of sin very clearly demonstrated for generations over 2,000 years, starting with the first brothers in Genesis chapter 4, carrying all the way forward to today where we're still digging mass graves in Ukraine today and taking bodies and hefty bags and just pumping them in there. Because this is a sin-sick world. But the remedy is Christ. And all it takes is seeing that I'm fallen before a holy and righteous God, which makes so much sense. It makes so much sense of who I am and how I've reacted. And the remedy is simply seeing that that is true and saying, God, I repent of all the wickedness that has come out of my heart and my life, and I repent by turning from trusting myself to trusting Christ, who now becomes my Lord and Savior. And I'll follow after Him with my everything. I give everything over to Christ. One John three fifteen and sixteen. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We have to remember that hatred is the moral opposite of love, and that's what John is showing them from Genesis four, that continues into the world that the early church is having reactions of hatred. Hatred for the brethren. And this leaves an eternal principle for us today. Hatred is the moral opposite of love. In John 8.44, those who are not abiding in Christ are actively living out the moral opposite of God's character of love. We, believers, Christians, members of the same body, unified together for God's glory, are not marked by hate. We're marked by love. That's why we look at a Westboro Baptist church-based organization and we say, you are not a church. You're, you're full of hate. You just spew hate everywhere you go. You just say hurtful, hateful things. I remember the first time I encountered those, those people walking up uh, to, a, to, a, um, to a church in, in California and being screamed at by this woman. I remember I was taken aback very much by her language. I was like, wow, <laughs> you ever heard the way these people speak? It is something else, something to be held. It is not fruits of the Spirit of God. Right, when we look at the fruits of the Spirit, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like hatred. It doesn't look like unhinged anger. Because we're more than conquerors. Death has no sting for us. If, if we were of the world, we'd be out there fighting, right? Some of us perhaps would prefer that. And we could take it into our own hands. We don't have to be patient and wait on God. We don't have to receive the sufferings of Christ in our body. We could just go hit somebody in the mouth. But that's not what Christ calls us to. That's not the plan of God to glorify himself. He chooses the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. 
He moves on the hearts of men who become meek, bridled power. And then he tells us to live in a world that opposes and frankly hates us and to be salt and light in that world. As Peter describes, having a desire that those people come to see the glory of God. This is why we have to understand that the tension and the opposition between good and evil is necessary. It brings God glory. Verse 16 talks about a a kind of a knowledge a knowledge. By this we know. Not that we know head knowledge because we read it in a book. We know because we've experienced it. We know because we've felt it. We know because we've seen it. We know because we desire to gather together with this group of people because we love them. Not because they bring us some kind of a benefit. I don't gather together because uh, you benefit me in some way. We don't gather together. We don't hang out at each other's house. We don't meet around town in coffee shops because we benefit each other in some kind of a transactional way. We do it because of the love that we have one for another. And that's what this form of knowledge is talking about in verse 16. I don't say that I believe in God. Just like I don't say that I believe in John Nicholas. I know him. I see him. I've spent time with him. And so I really work to kind of specifically say things about God. By this we know carries the same kind of assurance of who I know. By this we know because of the love of the brethren. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the love, how does God's love abide in him? We stop here, and I like that. It's an open question. And this can feel like the highest expression of love for us because, uh, frankly, we're probably greedy in our hearts and desire for our own selves. I, I don't think this is the highest. I think it's like a lowest form. I think he's starting at some of the lowest forms of love that we could have for one another and saying, hey, do you feel evidence of this? It's like moving day. You know, if you've ever moved, everybody tells you they're going to be there on moving day. You know who cares about the people who show up, Right? He's asking us to consider ourselves. And I love those questions that people, that, that sometimes you know, questions pop up in Scripture, and I love it. Even in the first fall in the garden, God comes to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? God is not looking for Adam. It's not that Adam had this rock that he would hide behind. It was really hard for God to find him because you know Adam was kind of tan in the same color as the rock, and Adam was cleft. <laughs> like the rock was, and so he just blended in, and God's like, dude, you're good. God's asking him to consider himself. Adam, where are you? Why did you do this, Adam? Think about it, because it'll shape your understanding of me and you and our relationship together. I want you to to be introspective. And so this comes to us in the same way. If you see your brother in need and you close your heart against him, do you have God's love in you? And remember, that love that we have in us is how we know we're found in God. It's what triggers the hatred of the world around us. And so really what John is doing is saying all of these things are true because you're a believer. Is this true of you? The unity of the Christian family forms into one body. 
in a really unique fellowship and love one for another. And we don't just accept someone being in need. We have compassion and care for that person. And that's, that's fruit. That's fruit of God's love in us, working through us, because otherwise that's not who we are. In fact, we're glad to step on someone to step up to the next level. You see it in business all the time. You have to crush someone to move up. The Christian family functions differently. And so the question of verse 17 is, truly, does God's love abide in us? And it's one that we should park on and spend some time on because of the tension that exists between good and evil. We should seek to suppress that in ourselves. And we shouldn't be surprised by hatred that we receive. We shouldn't be discouraged by it. And we also shouldn't revel in it. Rather, we should push on carrying the death of Jesus in our body so that the glory of God will be shared. And so if you find hatred from the world pressing against you, don't be surprised by that. Find it as opportunity to share from a place of love, of a God of mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have given us one another who are a blessing. God, a family of believers that we can lean on and rely on, worship with. And God, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, and your awesome plan to redeem us, who died for us while we were still sinners. God, it is amazing that while we were in active, open hatred of you, bent towards anything but you, you came after us. You, um, a sovereign and a holy God, decided before the foundations of the earth that you would come and get us, though we hated you. And God, we thank you for that. I pray, God, that that would then motivate us to share of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your gospel with anyone who would listen and with those who won't. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You would stand with us as we uh, worship through song.